This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. Officials have confirmed that bull rider Mason Lowe died after he was thrown from a bull, which then stepped on him. According to the Denver Post, the coroner's office confirmed that Lowe died of blunt force trauma to the chest. Lowe was from Missouri. He was ranked 18th in the world. The stock show presented a special video tribute to Lowe on Wednesday, including this moment from one of his past competitions. Let's go to Mason Lowe right now. Here's a guy going into his hand. Mason Lowe looks fantastic. In the tribute video, the bull rider talked about how he got his start. We used to have a bunch of dairy calves on the farm in Exeter, Missouri, and uh, we used to go out there and feed them and my dad would stick me on the back of him and kind of let me ride him and just thought it was fun. And uh, never to get on no sheep or nothing, went straight to calves and steers and peewees and all the way up to this point. Joining us to talk about bull riding, its appeal, and the enormous risks that come with it is Cody Lostro. He won the Professional Bull Riders World Championship in 2009. Lostro lives in Olt in northeast Colorado and recently retired. And Cody, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I sure, sure I'm glad to be here. You weren't at the stock show the night Mason Lowe died. How did you find out what happened? No, ma'am, I wasn't there uh, that night. I was actually, I was actually sleeping in bed uh, Tuesday night, and I, I got a phone call from one of my buddies that wasn't there either. But he said he'd heard there was a a bad wreck, and he was calling to see what I knew about it, and and I didn't know anything about it. But uh, but yeah, the next morning, obviously, it was was everywhere and uh you know it just breaks your heart to hear that especially especially first thing in the morning when one of your brothers isn't uh isn't around anymore what were your thoughts when you heard i don't i don't know how to describe a guy's thoughts when when uh you know a fellow teammate essentially is uh is killed doing something like this it's kind of indescribable really like I, I feel terrible i feel terrible for his his wife and his family um but i also understand that uh you know we all know the risks when we play this game and we're all willing to to pay the ultimate price and i think that's something that um it's hard for people that haven't done it to understand but as a bull rider you can respect the fact that uh he was willing to to pay that price. And unfortunately he did. Did you know him? I did know Mason. Um, we weren't terribly close. Uh, I just basically knew him. He was kind of coming up towards the end of my career and I'd seen him at some events and we talked and hung out in the locker rooms a bit. Um, but, uh, but I hadn't spent a whole lot of time with him throughout my career or his. Bull riders started wearing protective equipment, I believe about 20 years ago. Why wasn't that enough to protect him? Well, the protective equipment that uh, the bull riders wear, one piece is pretty universal and mandatory. It's the vest. Um, it's uh, it's just a vest that covers up your vitals, basically. Um, it helps spread out the, the weight of an impact. And it also, the main reason for it is uh, when you get stepped on, the feet, the bull's feet kind of slide off of the vest. And so... Um, hopefully you don't take the full force of that, uh, that bull's weight. Um, unfortunately they don't, if you're laying flat on the ground and one steps on you, they don't protect you from getting, uh, from getting squished. You know, there's not, not really anything out there that can, that can do that. And so it's just, it's bad 
bad luck, essentially, if you're laying flat and the bull gets you square, um, you're going to take all that weight right right in your body. How much does a typical bull weigh? Uh, a typical bull weighs anywhere from, you know, 15, 1,600 pounds is pretty average. You get towards the bigger end, they're 1,800, 1,900, and they can be up to, you know, 23, 2,400 on the extreme big end. Uh, plenty, plenty of weight to be thrown around for sure. In what ways has bull riding become more dangerous over the years? Well, in my opinion, bull riding's always been dangerous. Uh, from the from the first time ever, anybody ever got on one, has been you know something you can get hurt doing. But uh, in my mind, I like to compare it to to driving a car. Everybody can relate to driving a car. If you drive around at 100 miles an hour all the time, uh, there's a lot greater risk than driving around at you know 40 or 50 miles an hour. And so as the bull power has increased over the years, and what I mean by that is these bull breeding programs have produced more and more great bulls. Um, The cowboys, uh, you know, we're getting on more of these better and and better bulls more more often. And so that's kind of how I relate it to driving. Instead of cruising along at 50 and then occasionally driving 100, typically a a professional bull rider these days is driving 100 miles an hour, you know, he's, He's taking, pushing his body and his, his, uh, pushing his limits, I guess, every single time he gets on. Hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with retired bull rider Cody Lostro. This week, a bull rider died at the National Western Stock Show. We're talking about the thrill and the dangers of bull riding. How common is this kind of death? Uh, I wonder if you've known others who've died. Um, unfortunately, I have known a handful of, uh, of riders that have passed away due to riding bulls and it's not, it's not terribly common. I think, uh, in the history of the PBR, which has been going on since 1994, there've been, there's been three deaths. Professional um, bull riders. Yes. Correct. Um, and that's, uh, three deaths within the, the PBR organization at PBR sanctioned events. Um, I've been, you know, I've known a few other guys that, uh, that had gotten killed in other events. And so I wouldn't say it's terribly common, but it's, it's a definite, uh, possibility. That's, I mean, that's worst come worst, worst case possibility. But as far as injuries go, you know, you're talking about one out of every five rides, probably a guy's getting hurt. Mm. I have to think that riders are a bit conflicted, that they love the sport, they push themselves hard. Here's what Mason Lowe said a while back about bull riding. The way I was taught, you know, you can don't give up whether you're hurting a little bit, just keep going at it and hopefully it'll pan away out. Is there a point when you're injured or have had a series of injuries that you should give up? <laughs> well... Yes and no. Giving up isn't really in a bull rider's mentality. Um, that's how we're we're raised and taught. And I don't know whether it's just something in our personalities that uh, we're kind of st- stubborn and hard headed, and we don't like to give up. Um, and what Mason said there, he hit the nail on the head. Uh, you try to be as tough as you can and deal with it. And uh, and there comes a time when you can't deal with stuff, and you have to go get healthy. Um, but unfortunately. Our drive to compete is very high, and also the fact that we don't we don't make a living uh, if you're not competing. Mm. Not like other professional sports where we can go on the injured reserve and still be able to pay the bills um, if we don't compete. 
then we don't get paid. And so you get, uh, there's always that fine line between being tough and stupid. Mm. And I think bull riders ride that line harder than anybody else in the world. Have you ever had an injury you didn't think you'd recover from? Well, quite honestly, there's been a lot of them that just added up over the years and eventually became uh, stuff that I that just can't. That does, my body doesn't work the same way it used to. The arm that I ride with had five surgeries on, and, and from all those surgeries and injuries and scar tissue and stuff, it literally just does not work like it should. And uh, I know, you know, I know it never will. That's something that, that I'll have to deal with forever. But that's, that's a, you know, it's a choice I made and I'm not going to complain about it. And I imagine that's what made you decide to retire. That was part of the reason, yeah. Uh, one was I had uh, some other health issues that kind of kept me away from the game for a couple of years. And uh, when I came back, you know, I, I was still good at riding bulls. And I still enjoyed it, but I wasn't quite as passionate about it as I used to be. And, uh, the, and then I couldn't stay healthy. I was hurt all the time and decided that, I, you know, kind of could see the writing on the wall. I w- would continue to ride. I would continue to tear up myself. And it, since it didn't mean as much as it used to be, uh, I figured that uh, I'd call it a career. You have a wife and two daughters. How often did you think about what would happen if you didn't make it? Well, having a having a family is a is a game changer for sure, especially in a, a dangerous sport. Um, when it was just me and my wife, it wasn't really that big of a deal, to be honest with you. I really, you know, I didn't just speak bluntly. You know, if I were to to die, then I would hate it for my wife. But at the same time, I knew she would be all right. You know, she's she's a full grown woman and she can take care of herself, and everything would be okay. Uh, but having kids totally totally changed that scenario. Um, you know, I don't want, I don't want my little girls to grow up without a dad. I don't want to miss their lives. And so I did, you know, I'd competed for a long time with, with, uh, with my kids as well, but it was definitely harder to, uh, to leave home and, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, once I got to the event and it was time to compete, that's all that mattered, uh, was getting through that. And, and really that's the way it needs to be. When a guy's faced with a dangerous situation, he's got to be uh, totally focused on the task at hand in order to do it well and come home and see his family again. Mm. Safety in sports has become a big conversation in the last few years, especially in football. Bull riding is watched by millions of people. Should safety be a bigger part of the discussion? In my opinion, we're doing everything we can to make riding bulls as safe as we can uh you know i spoke earlier about the protective vests that we wear and and also i'd say 80 to 90 percent of the guys wear uh protective helmets as well um, which do help a lot you know save your face from getting crushed and, and help from uh you know feet to slide off when you get stepped on and such but uh i honestly i don't know what else can be done to make it any safer uh it's a pretty pretty raw sport kind of gladiator like you know where it's it's you and an animal and you're battling it out and uh a lot of times the animal wins Hmm. as opposed to being wrapped up in a full body protective suit uh you know that might be a little bit safer but then a guy wouldn't be able to stay on these bulls either he's got to be able to move um but i think we've come a long ways with the whole concussion issue as well not only from the nfl 
uh, but in the bull riding world, because they're be- it's becoming you know more and more well known and more has uh, been studied on concussions and the effects of it. And so now, as riders, we're a lot better prepared with the knowledge we've been given about this type of stuff. And so, um, like I said, about that fine line between being tough and stupid. Uh, when it comes to concussions, it was really easy to go over the line and, and be stupid and, and do stuff you shouldn't be doing. But now we're better prepared with the knowledge. And the doctors have uh, got testing tools to better confirm these diagnoses of concussions and how to properly recover from them. Um, I think we're coming a long ways with in that aspect, but the fact is uh, it's always been a dangerous sport and it's always going to be a dangerous sport. Cody, thanks for joining us. No problem. I sure appreciate you having me on. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Cody Lostro is a retired bull rider. In 2009, he won the Professional Bull Riders World Championships. He lives in Alt, Colorado. We spoke about the thrill and the extreme danger of bull riding. After years of being referred to as the next big thing in Colorado women's golf, Becca Huffer could make those predictions a reality. The one-time child prodigy from Denver is set to make her debut as a member of the Ladies Professional Golf Association. She'll travel to Australia next month for the tour's season-opening event. And Huffer joins us now by phone. Becca, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. It's been a winding road for you to get to this point. We'll talk about that in a bit. But now that you're here getting ready for the season to start, what excites you most about what you're doing? Um, I'm just super excited for the, you know, finally having the opportunity to compete at the very highest level um, and just really ready and excited to do that. As we said, you grew up in Denver, started playing at the age of six. You were a state champion uh, in high school and went on to be a star golfer at Notre Dame. You graduated in 2012. At that time, did you think it would take another six or seven years to make the tour? Um, At that time, probably not. Um, I had a few problems with injuries um, my senior year of college going into my first couple years playing professionally, which kind of pushed my timeline back a little bit. But it's one where I just kind of kept getting better every year. Um, I always said it's like if I hit a point where I wasn't improving, then I, you know, think about changing something else. But I've just always gotten better. And I knew, um, especially last year, that it was my time. Swimmer Missy Franklin was a child prodigy in Colorado and clearly made it big. She won the Olymp- won Olympic gold medals. Did you ever look at her and wonder, will that be me someday? Uh, you know, it was super fun to see um, Missy Franklin uh, being a Colorado girl and competing in the Olympics and doing so awesome. Um, you know, I think as an athlete, you're always wanting to play at the highest level. Um, so... I think it's one where I always knew I could. It just it was a matter of getting there. So um, it's exciting to finally be at this point. Missy spoke about the pressure she was under at a young age. Talk about being a young celebrity athlete, and I wonder if you ever felt that extreme kind of pressure. You know, I don't think I did. Um, I especially when I started, golf was 
very much like I just played it in the summer. It was my summer sport to do. I was I was good at it, and I liked winning tournaments. Uh, but I did all sorts of other things. Um, so it really, I don't think I had that kind of pressure. I knew that in Colorado, I was um, definitely one of the you know top players coming out. Um, but I, I don't think I let that part get to me at all. Um, I just enjoyed playing and was hoping to make it. Yeah, what does playing golf mean to you? Uh, you know, it's it's by this point I've been doing it so long. It's uh, definitely a part of me, but it's I I love the competition, and I think that's that's really why I keep playing because I just that's something that I really enjoy doing. And uh, tournament golf is completely different than just going out and playing for fun on the weekends. So uh, I think that's really what's kept me going. You alluded to an injury you suffered. You were at Notre Dame. Um, And I'm wondering, uh, you know, what was going on? Uh, How serious was the injury? Um, It was my right wrist, and it was one where for a while we weren't really sure. We were thinking of just um, tendonitis in my wrist, which... So for like my senior year, I had to, they had me, you know, not hitting balls and practicing, just kind of putting for <laughs> before tournaments, which was difficult. Um, and after I graduated, you know, it just still was not good. So it was until a couple of years afterwards that I finally found a cold laser treatment for it. And um, I had a ganglion cyst in my wrist, so it was a little notch nodule that was sticking out. So I knew something was weird mm. and that got rid of it. And it was one where I could finally like actually hit balls for more than, you know, 20 minutes without it hurting. And it was great. Did you come close to quitting because of the injury? It was one where I went to um, the second time I did uh, Q school for the LPGA. That's qualifying school. Yes. Um, And it was in California, and I was putting my hand in a bucket of ice for the last round just to try and get done with it. Um, And I, I didn't qualify to the next stage that year and was driving home. And I was, you know, very upset about it because I knew that I couldn't be playing with this injury anymore. Um, And then the next week I actually was going home to play in the Colorado Open and, you know, still having problems with my wrist, but I ended up winning that week. Mm. And that really just kind of uh, kept me going. (laughs) Right. And despite uh, your injury, you played for years on what's considered the LPGA's minor league tours. Um, Then you broke through and gained your tour card last November. I'd like to try and help listeners understand the fine line between being a very good golfer and being on the LPGA tour. What makes the difference? Uh, You know, at the level that um, between LPGA and the LPGA Symmetra Tour, it's all it's it's so minor there's it's really just who's making putts and from there the amount of strokes to win the tournaments and finish strong because everyone's a really good player everyone hits the ball really well um and it's just it's a it's a it's playing well at the right time and 
playing consistently. Um, you played with people who were out on tour and you weren't there, even though you thought you were just as good as they were. How frustrating was that for you? Um, it could be frustrating, especially when you, you know, are playing in tournaments on Symmetra Tour and people are asking, like, okay, well, what's the difference between you and LPGA? And you're like, well, it's just, like I said, you know, getting getting your break, basically, and um, finishing good at the right time. So it was something I had, you know, just didn't try not to worry about, especially this last year. It's one where everyone knows, everyone I'm completing with is in the same position, and you just have to believe in yourself. Now that you're on tour, what goals have you set for yourself this season? Um, This season, I would love to uh, finish in the top 80. That is, like, uh, full exempt status for next year on LPGA. Um, That has always been one of my goals for Symmetra Tour was finishing in top 80. They have the same sort of structure, and I uh, finished it every year. Um, I had my best year last year finishing 21st so um you know those kind of little goals and there's other smaller just day-by-day goals that I have um out on the golf course that I'm going to keep consistent just from the last year's uh kind of the one not not having big numbers out on the course no three putting um and just kind of enjoy enjoy myself and see how it goes. Becca, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Becca Huffer from Littleton will make her debut as a full-time player on the LPGA Tour next month in Australia. She joined us to discuss that as well as her celebrated career as one of the best golfers in Colorado history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our next guest decided to direct a play, even though the idea terrified her. The play is called Hooded or Being Black for Dummies. It's a serious yet funny look at what it means to grow up black in modern-day America. And it premieres tonight at the Aurora Fox Arts Theater. Uh, center, sorry. Director Betty Hart is with us. And hi, Betty. Hi, thank you for having me. Also here is Helen R. Murray, the executive producer for the Aurora Fox Arts Center. And Helen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Betty, what is it about the play that made you think twice about directing it? Well, Terrence has done an incredible job of showcasing the complexity of race in our country, and our country finds it challenging to deal with. And though I love the conversation, and I literally have made it part of my life's mission to have the conversation, it still scared me to bring it to life. We'll get into some of the details about the play shortly, but it's about race. Betty, you're African-American. In today's society, you also do work uh, facilitating discussions about race. So it might seem, with the exception of gender, based on boys, that the play is totally about you. (laughs) Or does being a male make it something completely different? I think it does make it different. I don't have the same experiences as I walk through life. I don't have to worry in the same way about driving while black or being while black. My brothers, my nephews and others have told me things that I've just never encountered. So that was a factor in me questioning whether or not I was right for this. Helen, as executive producer, what made Betty the right choice for this play to direct it? 
Well, so I'm new to the area, and so I didn't actually know the local directing landscape, so to speak. And when I first interviewed Betty, it was her really incisive viewpoints on the text itself, actually, and uh, the way in which she processed all of it that really attracted me to her directing. It was just she was just very intelligent about it. And more than anything, I wanted to find somebody who got the show, its dramatic structures, its satire, how you could bring that to life on stage. Uh, It really was something that was for me all about fit. And it was my gut instinct. And yes, she did say she was terrified of the script. And that only made me like her more. (laughs) Because I think if she felt like it was an easy punt forward, I probably wouldn't have gone with her. It was the fact that she actually understood how difficult it was that made her even more attractive to me. So let's talk about the play. Betty, you have an elevator pitch for it. What is it? Uh, the elevator pitch is that Hooded is a social justice play that deals with the themes of Trayvon Martin and is funny. Okay. So Trayvon <laughs> Martin was a young black teenager. He's fatally shot in Florida by a man who was sort of the neighborhood watch captain in a gated community. Um, Helen, can you give me a quick sum up of the play? Sure. It deals with uh, the meeting of True, who is from inner city Baltimore, and Marquis, who is an adopted uh, a son of a white family and goes to a really nice prep school in Achievement Heights. And these two boys meet one night. Uh, and I'm not going to give too much away. Betty hates it when I give too much away. But they meet <laughs> one night. And uh, basically... True believes that Marquis doesn't really understand how to be black and so t- makes it his mission to educate Marquis in how to be black and makes him a guidebook, How to Be Black for Dummies. Mm. So, Betty, how does funny play into this? Terrence has, is, an, is a genius. And what he's done is he's found a way to have the conversation by allowing us to laugh along the way. And so last night we had our first preview audience. And, and Terrence is the, the play's writer. Yes, okay. he's the playwright. Okay. Uh, yes, Terrence Arvel Chisholm. We should okay, say. absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead. And so what he's done is he allows us to laugh and think. And so you'll laugh one moment and then have a moment of saying, should I have laughed? Is that funny? What does that say about me? And I love his use of humor that way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. I'm talking with Betty Hart, the directed, uh, director of Hooded or Being Black for Dummies, which premieres tonight at the Aurora Fox Arts Center. We're also joined by Helen R. Murray, the Arts Center's executive producer. Helen, I think one of the interesting things about the production is that for most of the run, you're giving the audience an opportunity to talk about what they saw after the performance. Why is that important to you? Well, when you commit to programming a, p- a play like this, which I saw is an essential part of our season, uh, you're, you're really trying to make space not just for the art, but for the opportunity for our audiences to engage in that art in a really productive way. And it's because of the very hot button issues the play deals with, I thought it was really important to give voice to whatever they are beginning to take away from the play. I almost feel like it would be irresponsible of us to do the play and then just send them out into the world without giving them context and a safe space in which to discuss it. So to that end, we're having a community conversation after every show except tonight, which is opening and closing show. But every other uh, uh, every other performance, excuse me, will have a community conversation. And in fact, tomorrow's night, tomorrow night's uh, conversation is a panel about race and education. So we encourage folks to not just come to the show, but to stay and discuss the show directly afterwards. And at the end of a play, you show a video 
Betty, what is that video and why do you show it? Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to answer that. <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> uh, it's a video that shows some of what has happened in America with young black men in the last 10 years or so. And why do I show it? Because I think that's part of the impetus behind this play to let people know that, unfortunately, too many African-American youth and African-American adult males have been killed um, unnecessarily. You had a preview last night and invited City of Aurora employees. There were police there, and that's not a group trusted by many in the Black community. Helen, what was their reaction? I have to say, overall, Betty and I high-fived at the end of the night. That We were really excited. That audience was welcoming, engaging. We had no walkouts. We had no uh, angry anything, actually. What we had was an audience that took that journey together. Um, and, in fact, if anything, I, I think that they, without any reservation bought into the play. They went on the, the, the play asks a lot of the audience the entire way through, engages mm-hmm. with them directly, breaks the fourth wall, asks them to take part in many things. And there was no hesitancy among them. And so we were really excited by the way that everybody seemed to lean forward into it. And our law enforcement, you know, we, we've, I think there's a lot of preconceived notions about how people are going to deal with things. You know, the city of Aurora police, they're just doing their best and they're trying so hard every day to keep us safe. And so I have nothing but respect for them. And I was so heartened by them showing up because it shows exactly how open minded they are. So I have to be thankful for that. The play looks at this issue of of what makes us black or white. Betty, do you try to answer that? Absolutely not, um, because there are so many different ways. And I think Terrence answers it, so I don't have to. Um, I can definitely say as an African-American female that the search for identity and what does it mean to be black and female and Christian and so many other things is part of my journey. Um, But I think art's job is to help us all on our own individual journeys find ourselves. Helen, there's the goal of addressing important issues in society for this play. There's also business and the bottom line. Uh, How will you measure how successful the play is? (laughs) Oh, I could talk programming for forever. Uh, I try to balance our seasons to to make sure that not only are we offering entertainment and stuff that, that maybe will be the big sell, but to make sure that the stories that we share are worthy of the incredible community of Aurora. We have a really diverse community to not program for that wide uh, a storytelling base would be, I think, irresponsible on my part. It would be, be me ignoring what's right in front of me. So really, I'm just saying, I see you, Aurora. I see you, Denver. I see exactly how diverse you are. And I want to make sure your story is up here as well. And my hope is that, uh, Maybe not all of our patrons who saw, you know, one of our musicals is going to come, but hopefully we'll bring in new audience with this. So, yes, every show is a roll of the dice, and I can only hope that the art rises to the top and people recognize how wonderful it is and show up for it. Was it hard selling this vision to the city? 
No. Um, Once again, I have to give props to the city of Aurora. They're pretty fantastic. They brought me in for my vision and programming. And when I put this forward, there was no there was no pushback at all. I think they were excited by the fact that uh, the programming was was recognizing our diversity. So, no, they were wonderful. I I think they're wonderful. And Betty, you play dual roles. You're director of the play. You also perform. What's it like to move between those two worlds? Uh, It's an exciting and weird challenge. When I'm directing, I'm thinking about how do I tell the story from a global perspective? And when I'm acting, I have to really narrow my focus to how does my role help forward the story? And so it's about that balance and really making sure that I stay in my lane, so to speak, because when I'm acting, it's not my job to ask all of the larger questions, but to help the director who's doing that. How will you measure success? For me, success in this play is people coming people having conversations either with us directly after the show or with the person that they came with as they leave. It's hearing the groans and the laughter and feeling the energy. To me, it's seeing Terrence's provocative and beautiful story come alive day after day. That's what measures success for me. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you. Betty Hart is the director of Hooded or Being Black for Dummies. It premieres tonight at the Aurora Fox Art Center with performances through February 10th. She was joined by Helen R. Murray, the executive producer for the Art Center. Now our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. Earlier this week, Ryan Warner spoke with two Denver women who are making reparations for their slave-owning ancestors. One gave her inheritance, $200,000, to a nonprofit social justice group. The other is working on a national movement and has established a college fund for African Americans. CPR listener Irvin Martinez of Denver called to say he appreciates her effort. She must be a remarkable person because it's hard to, to believe that somebody would take the events of something that happened before she was born and actually have enough concern to to want to do something positive to try to alleviate, you know, all the suffering that, that had happened before she was even born. I thought it was pretty pretty courageous and pretty outstanding. But Martinez points out that indigenous Mexicans and Native Americans were also enslaved. He says he wants to make sure that doesn't get lost in the discussion. Even when I was growing up, I was taught in school that, you know, uh, Africans were brought from Africa and, and were made into slaves. But, you know, they did the same thing through the Caribbean and then they did the same thing through Mexico. My family is from New Mexico and my grandmother on my mom's side actually had land grants, Spanish land grants that were thousands of acres and uh, they would destroy the documentation and then they would just take over the land and uh, they were left without anything. That was something that's brought down in our family specifically uh, through, you know, through storytelling about our ancestors. Keep your feedback and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. And when we come back, what's in a name, especially if it's Super Blood Wolf Moon? We'll find out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast, Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state. Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of his toughest moments as Colorado's governor. What that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. A goal of getting more electric cars and buses on the road was the focus of Governor Jared Polis's first executive order Thursday. As CPR reporter Grace Hood explains, the governor says it'll go a long way to meeting his climate change goals. Polis spoke in front of an electric charging station in downtown Denver and called for wider adoption of electric vehicles. You know, Colorado has a choice. We can either be a leader or we can stand on the sidelines while other states and countries speed past us. Polis campaigned on a 100 percent renewable energy pledge. He wants to bring meaningful action to combat climate change. That's why he issued an executive order aimed at transportation, the single largest carbon dioxide polluter in the state. I'm proud to say that under my direction, Colorado will lead. Electric vehicles have gotten some traction with help from existing state incentives, but ownership has yet to reach a tipping point. Polis wants 10 percent of new car purchases to be electric by 2025, so his executive order will introduce a zero-emissions vehicle program to Colorado. Ten states already have it. Environmental advocates like Kelly Nordini of Conservation Colorado at the Polis event said it will mean more car choices for consumers. They want more choices in other states, states that have adopted these zero-emission vehicle standards, then the auto dealers bring the choices. So now Colorado will get those. Case in point, Subaru rolled out a new electric Crosstrek, but not in Colorado. It can only be found in the 10 states with zero-emissions programs. But there could be drawbacks. Tim Jackson with the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association worries it could penalize automakers and potentially drive up car prices for consumers because... If the factories are not meeting 10% mandate, then uh, the factories are penalized and they would have to raise the price on their cars, uh, trucks, and SUVs. Colorado could set up a lenient system that delays these penalties. The timing and all the details of the program will be decided by the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment. Those details are expected to be finalized this fall. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. There's a growing push in Colorado to clear the criminal records of people with low-level pot convictions. CPR crime and justice reporter Allison Sherry reports the effort is furthest along in Boulder. Of the 13 people who have shown up so far at the Boulder District Attorney's Office, only four had old charges that qualified to be expunged. Lawyer Katrina Weigel has had the unhappy job of turning away some who came for help. So I see this one from 1986 where you pled guilty to possession of marijuana concentrate, that's hash, like you were saying. You have a conviction for a Class 5 felony on that one. So that is not something that today we can help you out Boulder estimates 4,000 people qualified to get convictions expunged. And even though the numbers of people who've applied so far are small, Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty says this effort is an important start. I cannot think of another charge in my career where we were actively prosecuting it, and then years later it's been legalized. It really is one of a kind in terms of what's happened with marijuana legalization. So I think it's only right that we, 
out of fundamental fairness for these individuals, go back and provide them with relief from the collateral consequences associated with those convictions. Denver recently launched a similar program and estimates up to 10,000 people could be eligible to have old pot convictions wiped away. 48 have applied there so far. There are also broader efforts afoot in the legislature to automatically clear certain prior drug convictions from people's record. This would take the burden off of individuals to start the process themselves. Defense attorney Jeff Gard attended Boulder's clinic pro bono to help people who didn't qualify for the county's program. He says there are already many avenues for people to seek help. So right now I'm looking into this one guy's conviction from 1993 because some of these older convictions can be sealed. But so far, who gets help can be limited. Scott showed up to the Boulder Clinic on Tuesday only to be told his old felony conviction didn't qualify. CPR agreed not to use Scott's last name because he fears his felony record could prevent him from getting work. There's issues with employment and housing. Opens me up to a lot of abuse. But even if not everyone who's had run-ins with the law over marijuana is helped immediately, advocates say the start of this process, in Boulder and Denver and potentially statewide, is a benchmark to celebrate. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Look up in the sky Sunday night and you'll see something special. Scientifically, it's a lunar eclipse. Here's the thing, though. It's got a wild and mystical name. It's the Super Blood Wolf Moon. We brought in Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson of Denver 7 to explain, starting with that phrase, supermoon. It's super because we're slightly, it's slightly closer to the Earth in its orbit, and so the diameter of the moon will be slightly larger. Probably not that you'd really notice it unless you could, like, have two moons, one that would be when it's farther away in the orbit next to one that's bigger, but it will look pretty big on the horizon. And as we said, you have this full lunar eclipse going. Refresh us about what that means exactly. Okay, so let's think about, close your eyes, and think about the sun's way out there, and the moon is uh, out here, and in between is the Earth. And so the Earth's shadow is going to be on the moon. The Earth is blocking sunlight from reflecting off the moon. Now, it doesn't completely darken the moon to nothing because our atmosphere bends the light rays around the Earth a little bit, and so it casts a shadow that has some color. And the reason it looks a little red, and we call it the blood moon, right, is because the dust particles in our atmosphere filter out the shorter wavelengths, the blues and the greens, leaving mm. the longer wavelengths, which tend to be the oranges and the reds. And uh, what about the wolf part of this moon? Why is wolf in the title? Every full moon throughout the year has different titles. We were the harvest moon in the fall, the hunter's moon in November, when in days of old, the hunters would go out by the light of the moon to fill up their larder for the winter, the strawberry moon or the honeymoon in June. And in January, it's called the wolf moon. And most of that dates back to Native American times when uh, at that time of year, the wolves would be active and hunting. And at the darkness of night in the long, cold winter, you'd hear the wolves howling out in the distance. So there are other moons, as you mentioned, harvest moon. Does that look particularly different from, say, a wolf moon, or is it just the name? Just the name. It's just the name. They have a lot of different names. The December full moon is the long night moon. The native cultures would associate different times of the year. And you look through any of the literature on them, uh, they talk about how many moons have passed for this or that. So they would do their hunting, their planting, 
different things at different times of the year because of that moon. And that's where all the nicknames came from. And a lot of pioneers the same way. I imagine there are a lot of other moons um, like this one that are quite dramatic to see. Oh, yeah. We can have uh, anytime you have a full moon, there's the potential to have a lunar eclipse. And it's a super moon if it happens to be that at that particular time in the orbit, the moon is a little closer to the Earth. So you can have a super moon uh, at any point with an eclipse. They're almost always called a blood moon because every total lunar eclipse will cast a reddish shadow onto the moon. So you could have the super blood honeymoon. Right. So what's your favorite moon? I like the summer moons because they're just so... um, On a warm summer night with a full moon, it's really great to be out. But Colorado offers such great opportunities at any time of the year to be out. As long as you bundle up Sunday night, and I think the skies are going to be cooperating, uh, you can enjoy the super blood wolf moon. And what's the best place to see it? Probably better if you can get a little ways out of the city and get to a place that's just uh, quiet and serene. But you can see it, obviously, anywhere. It's not... Anything dangerous. It's not like with a solar eclipse that you can't look at. It's perfectly safe. You don't need special glasses. All you need to do is just go out and enjoy. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Andrea. Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He spoke with us about the super blood wolf moon, which will appear Sunday night. We'll post a list of watch parties around the state, along with some viewing tips at CPR.org. There's still a couple weekends left to check out the National Western Stock Show in Denver. If you go, make sure to bring your cowboy hat. And if it's not in tip-top shape, Rick Bishop with Western Tradition might be able to help you. I feel better on your head now? Yeah. All right. Yeah, just a, let me make it just a little bit longer. It looks like it needs a little bit more. Bishop cleans and reshapes cowboy hats using very hot steam. Well, steam softens the hat so I can, I can move it and set it in place, and when it cools, it'll stay that way. We shape them to any, any way you want them, fit them, custom fit them to your head. A lot of places can't do that anymore. So He's been doing this at the National Western Stock Show for 39 years, but he's been in the hat business even longer. Actually, been doing hats for 45 years. Started working for a small hat company in Fort Worth, and we made hats, took them to shows, and sold them. And actually, we did this show, but I didn't come up here at that time with it. But uh, I went to a different show. So. And if you think all cowboy hats have the same basic shape, they don't. Bishop says there are all kinds. They have square tops. Uh, rodeo kids are wearing them wide brim with square tops. Or what's what's old is new again now. So you know stuff that was popular when I was a young man growing up, which was in the '60s and '70s, now coming back in style again. So like bell bottom pants, you know, they're starting to make a comeback. 
Bishop doesn't have an actual Western tradition store anymore. Throughout the year, he hops from one stock show to the next, selling and steaming hats. You can find him at the National Western Stock Show in Denver through Sunday, January 27th. And to see Bishop in action, we'll have a slideshow of him at Hard at Work later today on CPR.org. That's our show today. Thanks for joining us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.